0: Father in heaven, we've worshipped and just even the thoughts that you've given us to think this morning about um, your dwelling place and us with you, about the fact that you you abide with us, you live with us and us with you. And even as we've contemplated already the very righteousness of Christ for us, we pray now that you would grant it to us. A heart that desires to know about that, to receive that, to live in that. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Jeremiah chapter 5. I want to work through Jeremiah 5 today mostly and a bit of, just a little bit of chapter 6. So I want to begin just by reading the first verse and then I'll talk talk us through... Um, some of the rest of this chapter, okay, so Jeremiah chapter five, I want to read verse one it 'll set the stage it 'll outline really where we 're headed, and then I want to pick up uh, uh, the rest of this chapter bit bit by bit. So hear the word of God Rome, uh, Jeremiah did I say Romans Jeremiah chapter five and verse one. God speaks to Jeremiah and says this, run." ...to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, look and take notice. Search her squares to see if you can find one man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. So here's the task before Jeremiah. His task is to go throughout Jerusalem and try to find one, as, it's, as he says here, who uh, does justice and who seeks truth. See if you can find that one person, and God has made a promise, if you can find one person, just one man like that, in all of Jerusalem, I'll pardon the whole city. I'll pardon, you get the sense of all of Judah, all of the southern kingdom of Israel. Now remember, God had called this young man, he's not quite so young here, but called Jeremiah when he was a young man, probably late teens, at best early 20s, probably late teens, calls this man Jeremiah, and Jeremiah doesn't want to really be the prophet of God. His dad was a priest. He probably had that in his mind. I'll be a priest. God calls him, however, to be a priest in a very special time. This very special time was a time when judgment was being pronounced upon ancient Judah. Now remember that Israel of old had been split, had been divided. Northern kingdom to the north, southern tribes to the south. Two tribes to the south called Judah Judah and Benjamin, ten tribes to the north called Israel. Now the ten tribes to the north had already gone through this process of prophets coming and warning, and they didn't heed the warning, and so God brought judgment. So the Assyrians, about a hundred years before Jeremiah prophesies, the Assyrians come and and destroy the northern kingdom. They deport all the people. They become, as now they've been called, been called the ten lost tribes of Israel. There's they're they're all over the place, the people of Israel. So the northern kingdom. Southern kingdom, still intact during the days of Jeremiah. But God is calling Jeremiah to bring this message of judgment. So he comes to warn them. And so we saw in the last sermon the last last week we saw uh, just a devastating question that God has Jeremiah uh, consider and and, and and ask the people in, in Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 5 thus the Lord says what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me the devastating question in the sense that it, it hits very 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 personally because God says, you know, I'm your husband. The metaphor that He's using here is husband and wife. He says, we've been married together. And so your sin against me, your unfaithfulness against me, isn't just you broke a contract. It was some kind of an objective thing. But, but this was, this was, this was intimate. It was passionate. I cared for you. I, 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 I protected you. I, I brought you out of Egypt. I did all of that. And, and I betrothed myself to you. I wed myself to you. And, and, and look how you've treated me. You've, you've been unfaithful spiritually. You've committed spiritual adultery. You, you've, you've gone after other gods. You, you didn't come to me to satisfy you. You didn't come to me for my wisdom. You went to others. You didn't come to me for direction. You went to others. You didn't come to me to, to define your life. You went to others. You didn't come to me to protect you. You went to others. You sought your own way. And, and I have this question for you what was wrong with me and then we have to ask ourselves the question what's wrong with me that i can't be satisfied with god so that's what sin's like if you want to really get at the, the heart of this that's it you me we can't be aren't satisfied With God, the one who loves us perfectly, the one who is perfectly wise, the one who is perfectly just, the one who is perfect in all ways. that's That's really the heart of the matter for us. That's what needs to be dealt with in us. So he comes to Jeremiah and then through him to the people to say, let me warn you, let me warn you. Don't flee from God. Don't, don't turn away from Him. Because if you do, there's destruction. There's judgment and in, in all of that. And, and then God asks the question, Now what man is there who, if his wife left him and married another and was content in that relationship, well, what, what man would take that woman back? And the answer is no man. Would he be disgraced by that? But then God turns and says, But I'm not like any man. If you repent, I'll take you back. By the very grace of God. And so Jeremiah comes with this message to continue to warn the people to call them to repentance. But yet, always God tells Jeremiah, they're not going to repent, judgment is going to come. They're not going to repent, judgment is going to come. And so now, Jeremiah receives this word from God. He says, now I want you to go throughout all of the city, before destruction comes, before judgment comes. I want you to go throughout all the city and find just one righteous person. If you do, I'll pardon them all. It sort of harkens back. Remember that time that Abraham was, was talking with God about Sodom. And God says, I'm going to destroy the city of Sodom. And, and, and Abraham's confused by that. God, how could you do that? If there were 50 righteous people there, would you would you really destroy them? And God said, of course not. And so Abraham said, how about 40? He said, of course not. If there were 40 righteous people, I wouldn't destroy them. I'm destroying them because their depravity is complete. And, and so I'm going to destroy them. He said, how about 30? No, I wouldn't. How about 20? No, I wouldn't. How about 10? Finally, Abraham's satisfied of God's righteousness and satisfied that none can be found in This place and judgment, judgment came. So now he says, I want you to go into Jerusalem and find just one, just one man who's righteous. And in one sense that would prove God's justice. At the end of this, if Jeremiah found none who were righteous, then then God could say, see, I told you, now really destruction can come, judgment can come. But what's amazing here is that God holds out this problem. if you could find one, I'll count that one for the whole city if you find one i'll count that one for everyone in that place that that one's righteousness would count for all of the souls of those who live in Jerusalem so jeremiah goes on his way we see and he begins he begins with the with the poor it's not obvious that he begins with the poor until verse 4 when it says, Then I said, these are only the poor. So, so he goes first to the poor in the, in the culture. And I don't know exactly why. It doesn't say why he began there. Could be that often those who are most downtrodden find life most difficult may be most receptive to help from God. And so, so surely a righteous one may well be found amongst them. And, and this righteous one we see is one who would be just. That is one who judges rightly. You can rightly judge between right and wrong and always then do what is right. That's the sense of does justice. You can rightly judge between right and wrong and always does that which is right. One who trusts God, who follows Him, who desires in every way to please Him and then does Moses in Deuteronomy chapter six puts it like this: Deuteronomy six verse thirteen. He said, he says, and this is kind of a reiteration. He's, God has brought the Israelites out of Egypt, and he says now that you're in this new land. He said. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. says Deuteronomy 6.13. It's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in, is in your midst, is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. Now he says, this is... He said, if you're going to, to live under God, then you must, in a sense, swear by His name. And what does that mean? It means that you are to hold God as your highest and controlling value. You know, when we were kids, you know, if you really wanted to convince somebody that you were telling the truth because they knew you, and so you had to really try to convince them that you were really telling the truth this time, you would say, cross my heart and hope to die stick a needle in my eye. Is that what I was reminded uh, just the other day, my father, bless his heart, had to have a shot in his eye and I called him that evening. He said, "What's well, a little sore. I said, Dad, remember when we used to say, <laughs> cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye? And he said, probably what you're thinking, that's gross. Um, <laughs> but uh, it hurts. And, and what we're saying is that my life is my highest value. And so on my life, that which I hold most dear, uh, please believe me, I'm telling you the truth. I'm speaking this on my life. In fact, if I'm lying, take my life. And you go, oh, surely your life is worth more than, therefore you must be telling the truth. Or my sight, stick a needle in my eye, my sight is worth more than, so surely you must be telling the truth. Or uh, people swear on their mother's grave, or the lives of their grandchildren, whatever is valuable to them. And say, it's... So God says, I want you to live as one who swears by my name. Meaning, I want you to live as one who holds me, God, to be your highest value, the most important one in your whole life, so that I am your witness, so that you would do nothing to displease me, so that you would do nothing to discredit me, so that you would do nothing to besmirch my name. I want you to live like that. And if you do, what that means is that you'll have no other gods before me, that you'll come to me and to me only. So as Jeremiah is running through, notice in verse 2, he says, though they say, as the Lord lives. In other words, as they swear by the name of the Lord. And, and So that should give us confidence, that little expression, oh, we must be able to find somebody because look, they say, they swear by the name of the Lord. But then the next expression dashes hope. He says, yet they swear falsely no? they've only become accustomed to religious things. They've only become accustomed to these things. It's just sort of something they go through the motions. And, and it really doesn't mean anything at all. And so they say, oh, as the Lord lives, yes, I swear by the name of the Lord. All of that. But the truth of the matter is what their lives really show is that they have other gods, that they do not come to God. Verse 3, O oh Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You've struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You've consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They've made their faces harder than rock they have refused to repent in other words lord even though you've corrected them even though you've disciplined even though you've brought hardship in their life so that they would turn to you still they haven't in fact what's it really done these hardships rather than turn them to you have even made them harder but he says these are only the poor they have no sense for they do not know the way of the lord the justice of their god he says well they're poor Maybe they haven't been taught well. They haven't been educated well. They're, they're poor. They don't get it. They don't understand. They, they've had difficult lives. Maybe they're jaded. So he says then in verse 5, I'll go to the great and will speak to them for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. In other words, I'll go to the great, the ones who've been taught, the ones who've, who've gone to the rabbinical schools, the ones who have uh, really know the Word when, when Josiah uh, uh, found the Word of God. These are the ones who studied. It. I'll go to them. Their lives have been better. Perhaps they're less jaded. Their lives have been have been filled with a measure of wealth, maybe they'll be more grateful. I'll go to them. Surely they know about, the, about right and wrong. They know about justice. They know the things of God. But then verse 6, or the middle of verse 5, he says, But they, all alike, had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. In other words, in their own greatness as human beings, they set themselves free. That we don't need God. He went to the poor thinking, well, they need God. They'll see this. No, not even they could see it. It isn't a matter of being poor that makes one righteous. For poverty can harden and it doesn't make one great that makes one justice. It doesn't make one learn it just because you know the things of God and, and know what justice the justice of God is. It doesn't mean that you yourself will, will do it. They, they, they learned these things. They saw themselves great. And they said, well, we don't need God anymore. We're just fine. They broke the yoke. They had burst all the bonds. And, and then we get this sense, therefore a lion from the forest shall strike them down a wolf From the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Uh, The apostasies are great. In other words, he says, listen, uh, you're in danger in your freedom. You think by your freedom you'll be safe, but in your freedom you're in great danger. You're, You're like that ox that was paired up with another, broke the yoke and went off on its own, and now there it is out in the open field, and the lions are looking and the lepers are looking ready to pout. That's where you are, in the midst of your freedom. You think you're free being away from God, but you're not. You are in in great, great danger. Verse 7, how can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me, and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery. They trooped to the houses of harlots. They were well-fed, lusty lions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. And... God says, even the children, I went to the children, I thought maybe I could find a child. Maybe there's a child among you who, who really is righteous. But no, they're not. That isn't that they learned unrighteousness from you. It's it's, it's, it's inherent within them as well. They have turned away from God. The, the real guts of the problem seems to be expressed in in, in, in verse 11 and 12. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to, to me, declares the Lord. For they have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing, no disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. See, there's this sense of God's grace that we think that, Oh, I sinned and nothing really happened. So we get the, the, the sense that, Oh, justice really won't come. Sort of like when you enter into danger and you duck and, and nothing really happened. Oh, then I can stay here. And that's what we seem to do. We think justice denied, or, or justice not given, justice denied is, is, is justice that will never really come. But it, but it isn't. It will, it will come. It will come eventually. Yeah. You think about our lives, I think about the health of my body. I, I wonder how many Snickers bars I would eat if I ate one. And then all of a sudden started gasping for breath. <laughs> you know Or smoking. It's an interesting thing if you smoke, I'm not preaching an anti-smoking message today, but, 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 but we think about these things. The, the consequences are, are down the road. You see? They're down the road. They, they, I don't feel it today. It doesn't seem like anything bad's going to happen to me today. And, and, and that's sort of hypothetical. And in fact, it doesn't seem like everybody who smokes or everybody eats too many Snickers bars uh, has problems later. And so, uh, but if the consequences were immediate, you wonder, but isn't that what it's like with our sin? We, we sin, we get away with it. It feels like, sometimes it even feels like it. We profit by it. It even makes us happy. It even fills our pocketbooks there, there, there are times when our sin seems quite profitable and so we begin to think okay maybe God really isn't watching maybe there really isn't justice maybe I can really get away with this and, and little by little we linger and linger in there in that sin and, and, and it just explodes on us eventually so that's, that's really the heart of the matter and it reveals our heart it reveals our heart if the consequences were immediate, then perhaps we would only obey because of the negative consequences. It would just be a pleasure-pain thing. And God says, no, I want it to be a matter of the heart. I want to see what you're really made of. I want to give you some rope. I, w- I want to see what's really in, in your heart. And He does. And when He does, what we see is that we continue in this rebelliousness. We rather like this sin. That's this sense of that taste for for sin. And so he goes through Jeremiah does. And he goes to the poor, he goes to the great, he goes to the children. And he ends up, oh, for Jerusalem. Right? And yeah, nobody there. And we get this sense, we, we know this sense, that if he came today, if he went through any of the cities of the U.S., he went through any of the cities of the world, he'd go, for, oh, for London. He'd go, oh, for Kansas City. He'd go Oh, for Beijing, there wouldn't be any that would be found. He'd come in our community, he'd come in our church, come in my house. Still, oh, for not to find one who is righteous. And so in a sense, he's saying to Jeremiah, see my judgment is just, there aren't any who are in fact fact righteous. And so he asked then this devastating question, verse 7. How can I pardon you? How can I pardon you when you're like this? How can I pardon you when you continue to sin? And the dilemma for God is that he is just. He does know right from wrong. He does know that which is right. And he can't condone that which is wrong. He's, in a sense, stuck in his own holiness. It's a good stuck, but he's there. He can't deny who he is, and he can't deny truth, and he can't deny justice. So he says, how can I pardon you when you are like that? He essentially says, I, I can't. we understand that we know there must be justice we know we can't call that which is wrong right we can't call that which is evil good Phil Ryken who's the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia writes concerning the justice of God and he recounts this story uh, that was run in Time Magazine about a mass murder. Some of you who are a bit older might remember Richard Speck, and it was an article about what Speck did while he was in prison. It says, that, among other things, Richard Speck managed to star in his own pornographic video. And a caption for the story read, "The wages of sin is dot dot dot," and underneath the caption was this quotation from Speck's video. If they only knew how much fun I was having in here, they would turn me loose. The caption was intended to provoke outrage, and it did. And the reason it had such an effect is because every human being has an inherent sense of justice. Whatever the wages of sin may be, they cannot include goofing off in jail. Right? They just can't. We know that. There's a sense of justice in us. And so God pronounces through Jeremiah this this justice, he, he he pronounces it in a metaphorical kind of way. For instance, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, in the middle of chapter, in the middle of verse six, uh, middle of verse five of chapter of uh, uh, five, uh, he speaks of it like a lion that could come down on you. Now you're alone. There you are. You're vulnerable in all of in all of this. Uh, he speaks about it in verse ten as a as a vine that's being ripped up. He says, "Go through her vine rows and destroy." But make not a full end, strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. And so strip them away. Uh, He speaks of them as, as, as kindling, really, that are going to burst forth into flame. Verse 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I'm making my words in your mouth a fire. So he's saying what you're going to speak is going to be like fire. And this people like wood and the fire shall consume you. But the reality is, what's, what's going to come in, in, in reality towards them as the judgment upon them as a nation, as an unrighteous people, verse 15. He says, Behold, I'm bringing against you a nation from afar. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, it's an enduring nation, it's an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They're, They're almighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust. They shall beat down with the sword. He says, so there's a nation going to come. You know, it's always a word of judgment in the Bible when God says a people will be there whose language you do not know. In other words, they're, foreign. they're not of me, they're foreigners. And so when they speak a language and, and you don't know it, that's not good, that's judgment against you. But it will be perfect justice, verse 18. But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us you shall say to them as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours in other words listen you want to serve these foreign gods great I'll give you over to them you'll see what that's like I'll I'll take my presence from you I'll, I'll put you into their lands you may be with their gods and that will be your judgment the perfect justice you want that it's yours so he gives it to them. Now, what are we to make of all of this? Well, I think of this. That what we see here in just this chapter 5 of Jeremiah is a shadow of what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in the book of Romans. It's the same kind of thing. He says, we'll conclude, that there is... No one righteous, not one. And so as Paul, in Romans, begins to make his case, he writes this, verse 18 of chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse for although they knew God they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him the way Moses would say that is they didn't swear by his name the way Jeremiah would say that is they weren't righteous they weren't just they weren't ones who would say as the Lord lives and really live it out God wasn't their highest value. God wasn't their controlling value. God wasn't the one that they desired most to please, to serve, that he would inform everything about their lives, that they would have no other gods before him. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. And reptiles. There you go. This sense of worshiping other, being satisfied, and you can hear God in the background. What fault have you found in me that you would go after another? So, as we come into Romans chapter two, Paul makes this case that he's going to conclude that all have sinned, all have rebelled against God. So there are Jews and Gentiles. Jews have the law; Gentiles don't. But 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 all have sinned. Those in, in the Jewish tradition of that day had the law, but 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 they didn't keep it themselves. They taught it to others, but they didn't keep it themselves, they couldn't keep it themselves. And and so what does that mean? It means they were guilty of the law. The Gentiles didn't have the law per se, but, but inside they, they had a sense of justice. They they knew these things. And still they themselves could not could not keep it. So Paul concludes in chapter three, this and these were all Old Testament quotations from the Psalms. Romans three in verse middle of verse ten. He writes, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one seeks for truth. It's the same as it was in the days of Jeremiah. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. their The venom of the asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their their eyes. Indeed, that was another of Jeremiah's key points. He speaks to them of the fact that they didn't fear God. Notice, still in Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 20. He says, Declare this in the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears, but but hear not. He says, do you not fear me, declares the Lord. That's don't you know who I am? And you can take that, who I am, in all kinds of ways. You can take it in the sense that He's creator. You can take it in the sense that He's judge. You can take it in the sense that He's the one who loves you. And He says, don't you fear me, don't you revere me. Because we know that that which we fear, we worship. That which we worship, we obey. He says, do you not fear me, declare the Lord. Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea. A perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though The waves toss, they can't prevail. Though they roar, they can't pass over it. In other words, he's saying, can you stop the sea? I can't. I'm the one who put the sand there. I'm the one who knew exactly how much sand to put there. I'm the one who stops the sea. Doesn't that make you suck air a bit to know that I'm talking to you? He says, but this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They've turned aside and gone away. They don't say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives us rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain that keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. They would go to other gods and and say, well, they supply the rain. God would no, I do. Shouldn't you come to me? Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you, and so forth and so on. And the apostle Paul pulls out of the Old Testament Scripture the same line, there's no fear of God before their eyes there we have it. And again, this judgment, if you go back to Romans in chapter 1, verse 24, where he, therefore God gave them up to the, in the lusts of their own hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And in other words, he says, all right, if you want it, it's all yours. Knowing that giving them over to that would ultimately be the most unsatisfying that they could ever imagine. And of course, the end that is to come, Jesus called eternal punishment. He referred to as a place where the worm doesn't die, where the fire is never quenched. God says, come to me. All of that really describes what we often speak of in terms of depravity, that the sin affects us completely. you notice this expression in verse uh, 11 of Romans chapter 3, no one seeks, no one seeks God. And you say, well, lots of people seek God. The truth is the only ones who truly seek God are the ones who God is enabled to seek Him because really by nature we may seek the things of God. We desire them. We all want some peace. We all want relief from any guilt we want a measure of security and assurance and all of that in the context of life. We want that, but do we really want all of that from God? We want peace, but do we want the Prince of Peace? Do we want the peace that comes from Him? The peace that comes only by way of a cross? The peace that comes by way of our admitting our own sin that we can't, that we need Him? That He's the one who has had to take the penalty for our sins? That brings peace, peace from God. Are we really seeking God and we're seeking Peace. We want a sense of security, but are we seeking God when we're seeking that security because the security comes from God is for us yielding ourselves completely to Him and submitting to Him. We want purpose in life, but we, do we want God's eternal purpose for us? Do we want that purpose that's defined by the very rule of God? That purpose when we're seeking God. You see, to seek God means that we, we want to seek His rule. To seek God means that we want to seek His, His wisdom. When we seek God, it means we want Him rule over us and the problem with sin is it says no i want to rule over myself no i want to do it my my own way and so sin pervades us it, it, it pervades every aspect of our being it affects our minds it affects our wills it affects our emotions it affects the whole human race and so it affects every relationship among each other because it affects each person in it it affects our whole society because it affects every institution in it it affects our whole world it affects all of creation That's what rightly could destroy, should destroy at all. What we find is everything is exactly the same as it was in ancient Jerusalem except for one thing. The righteous man has been found. Really, the righteous man has been sent. He wasn't there, so he had to come from outside. He had to come by way of... Virgin birth, He had to come by way of incarnation. He had to come by way of leaving glory to come to earth. Taking on flesh, this one has come. He's been found. So that this promise that God made to, to, through Jeremiah has come true. If you can find one righteous one in Jerusalem, I'll pardon. And He did. By way of Him. And that see is the very righteousness of Christ to us. His righteousness. So that we're found righteous, declared righteous in Him. You see, when we stand in the presence of God, it is true that we must have no sin. That is, we must be forgiven our sin. That our sin has had to be taken from us and put someplace else. And our sin was taken from us and put on the Lord Jesus. That leaves us forgiven. That leaves us pardoned. But now the question is, can I stand in His presence righteous? Where am I going to get the righteousness to stand in the presence of God? Where can I be one to stand in the presence of God? One who is just, one who does justice, one who seeks truth. Where where can I get all of that? Well, I can give it my best shot. But I've tried that. And my best shot didn't work. And so what God does in having found this one who is righteous for us... Is to count his righteousness to us. So that our sin goes to him. And his righteousness comes to us. And we stand before God. And that's true. Romans 4. The apostle puts it like this. First he talks about Abraham. Anytime biblical writers want to make a point. If they can find Abraham to to, to do it with. They like to do that. What does Scripture say? Verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him and reputed, credited to him, given to him as righteousness. It wasn't Abraham's righteousness. God gave it to him as a gift. He says, I'll cover you with my righteousness. I'll think of you as one who is righteous. You're not, but I'll think of you that way. I'll declare you to be just that. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift But as his due, and to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. Understand, as a believer in Christ, you're blessed. God has said, ah, you're mine, I favor you, you're blessed. Because your sins aren't counted against you. They were counted against Christ. So the question, how can I pardon you? Well, I got someone who would pay for your sin. How can I receive you? How can I accept you? Well, I've found one whose righteousness can be given to you. And it didn't, this also wasn't just true for Abraham. It's, it's true for all who believe. For instance, Romans chapter 4 and verse 20, t- or 20, 23. But the words that was counted to him as righteousness were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, who, delivered up, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That was the point of the reading from Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as man came into the world through thus, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. And you say, but I wasn't there. How could I have sinned? Well, Adam was your representative. In him we all sinned. And then verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, that is many, all those in him, they were the ones who received the sentence of death because of his sin. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift By the grace of that one man, Jesus, abounded for many. So his grace comes to us. And the free gift isn't like the result of that one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Adam's sin brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And because of one man's trespass, Adam's, death reigned through the one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus therefore as one trespass led to condemnation to all men so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men that is all we believe for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous so so what? wow when you think about this so what? So what lays out like this, first of all this, that as we come to grapple with our helplessness and hopelessness because of our sin, we can look out and say, is there someone to stand for me? Is there one righteous one who can stand for me? And the answer is yes. And he is the righteous one, the holy one of God. He stands for us, his righteousness for us. We realize we can't add anything to it, but we don't need to. It's all sufficient. Now that doesn't mean we'll go off and live as ever we did before, as ever we wished before. How could we do that if our longing is righteousness? If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be filled. First we'll be counted righteous by Christ, and then He will honor us by working in us to make us holy. And so this we know, that I don't have to wait to be perfect. To know I live in the presence of God. Because though I am a sinner, I am declared by God righteous. Though I'm a sinner, He sees me as His beloved Son. Because I'm in His beloved Son. So I can have the assurance that I, I live in His presence all the time. Bad things happening, good things happening. I live in His presence all the time. I can have the assurance that when I pray, He hears me because He has declared me righteous in His sight because I'm covered with the very righteousness of Christ. I have the assurance that when I die, I can die well in confidence knowing that He'll receive me as one declared to be righteous. I have the confidence even when I sin. That as I confess my sin, that I'm not only forgiven, but I also know that my sin has been so covered by Jesus that in the area where I have sinned, He has obeyed, and his obedience is counted in place of my sin, in the presence of God. Bagos are mine. There's two devastating questions really asked by Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 5. I've I've revealed one, and I'll end with the other. The first one is in verse 7. How can I pardon you? We, we, We see that now. The righteous one has been found. The righteous one has come. The second devastating question comes at the very end of this chapter, verses 20 and 21. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their discretion. My people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? (sighs) Now in their case, when the end, that is when their judgment would come, when the Babylonians would come into their land, all they could do was die. All they could do is give in. All they could do was to surrender. But the righteous one has come. So when the end comes for us, we'll stand in Him. When the end comes for us, we'll stand confident in Him. When the end comes for us, we'll say, I'm I'm with Him. And God will say, then you're with me. That, you see, is the good news of the gospel. Let's pray, Father. I pray for me, for us, that we really would get it, that, that this would... Thrill our souls to hear once again. And Lord Jesus, it is amazing to us that you would come and do all you did, that you would come and sacrifice for us. We know you did it because of who you are, because you love. You love your Father and came to vindicate his name, but you love us as well. And you came to save us. And all that you did, you did so that your Father would be glorified and that we would be blessed, and we are. So we give you thanks. Give us confidence to trust in you and you alone. May we never think or depend upon our own righteousness, thinking that it adds anything, it saves, it can be anything at all. May we never think that if a righteous one were searched for, that we would be the one found, but rather you would be the one sent. And we would trust in you. Give us all that confidence, all that assurance. May we know this true. I pray especially, God, for those who are hurting on this day, that you would grant them that grace. I pray, God, for those who do ministry in the name of Christ, the context of the life of our church. I pray for Dan Rudman. I pray for Land as he ministers. I pray that these would be men who swear by the name of the Lord that they would live in such a way that would bring you glory trusting only in Christ speaking truth about Christ grant them your grace I pray Father we give you thanks on this day for with Vince and Julie as, as they await um, their son, so we're grateful for all that you've worked in that situation. Pray for them as they make preparation, that you would grant them grace. We pray for the people of Haiti, Father, that you would care for them, that they would know that the care comes from you, that unlike those who have been devastate, who were devastated in the days of Jeremiah, who were simply hardened by the difficulties of life, that they would be softened and repent and turn to you as we all would. Pray for those aid workers, Father, who are there helping. Pray for us that we would be generous. Help us, Father, to help. God, we pray that you would be with us as a church. We pray that we would be those who swear by the name of the Lord. That God, you would be our highest controlling, informing value that we would yield to you in all things, desiring to please you. On this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. I remind you about our time uh, together tonight, as we gather together to pray, our time Wednesday evening as we gather together to share about the life of our church.